What do jobs, health, marriage, loved ones, pregnancy, ministry dreams, and friends have in common? Well, they're all things that many of us here have lost. And the loss of those things has been painful, caused us grief, and tested our faith in God strongly. And yet these things are just the tip of the iceberg. Add to them financial distress, grief over sin, disappointments of all kinds, failed hopes, persecution and martyrdom. And you start to describe the lives of believers all around the world. Now, imagine if in the midst of your suffering and grief, someone intending to encourage you writes you a letter in which they say, count it all joy. You'd be forgiven for thinking they'd failed Compassion 101, right? But what if the author wasn't insensitive or unfeeling? (laughs) What if the author was none other than James, the Lord Jesus' half-brother, And the letter was Holy Scripture inspired by the Spirit of God. If you knew that he had lived what he'd preached, had ultimately gone on on to die a martyr's death, still saying, count it all joy, would you be interested in meeting him and perhaps learning from him how you could obtain joy in the midst of your trials and suffering? Well, If you'll open your Bibles to James chapter 1 and follow along with me, we'll allow James to teach us, we'll allow him to show us both how we can find joy in our sufferings and trials and why we should do so. And we'll find that God does not randomly hand out trials and suffering. Rather, God uses trials the way a skillful goldsmith uses fire, purging and perfecting and purifying us. And as we'll see... Because God is ultimately working for our good, we must rejoice and remain steadfast. Let's read James chapter 1 together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself... And goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. Father, Lord God, I pray that you would be pleased to meet with us now. Oh Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you would pour much grace upon us. Lord, would you open eyes and ears and hearts to hear your word? Oh, Father, I pray that your word would fall on good soil, Lord God, that we would hear and receive your word and be moved by it, Lord. Father, I pray for for grace on me as I speak, Lord. I pray for boldness and clarity of mind and clear speech, Lord. Father, I pray most of all that you would give us joy and hope and patience and peace, Lord God, that we would walk out of here with a new mind with a new set of eyes and a new way of thinking about our trials, Lord. I ask this for your glory's sake, Father. Amen. So before we dive in, let me tell you briefly where we're headed. We're going to look at three key commands. There's a number of commands in James 1, but we're going to look at three of the key commands that James gives us. First, we're going to look at a seemingly strange command to count it all joy, given in verse 2. Second, we'll look at the command, let steadfastness have its full effect, which we find in verse 4. And finally, we're going to look at the command, be doers, given in verse 22. And as we go along and look at the whys and hows of these three key commands, I believe we'll find much hope and encouragement for our souls. So let's start by looking at James's first command, count it all joy. Look at verse 2 and 3 with me. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. (laughs) That sounds a little weird, right? 
I mean, here's James speaking to believers who, despite their faith and trust in Jesus, are facing all kinds of trials. And what does he tell them and us to do? He says, count it, reckon it to be all joy. He gives us a command, tells us to change the way we think about trials. He says we're to think of trials hitting us as literally pure joy, all joy. It's kind of weird, right? Why does he tell us this? And he's not telling us to count it only joy in the sense of pretending that there's no suffering and there's no pain and no grief in trials. But he is telling us that underneath trials that do cause grief and pain, there's a silver lining that we are to count all joy. And when are we to count it all joy? Well, verse 2. When you meet trials of various kinds. Not if... But when you meet trials, if you're a believer today, then trials are not a likelihood or a possibility. They are a certainty. And not just severe, life-threatening trials, but everything from annoyances, mild sickness, and so on, all the way through to persecution and ultimately martyrdom. If this sounds a little crazy to you, then stick with me for a moment, and we'll see in a bit both why we can and should count trials all joy. Okay, so James is telling believers to count it all joy when they fall into all kinds of trials and trouble, right? Why? Why does James tell us to count it all joy when things go badly wrong in our lives? Well, verses 3 and 4 hold the answer. Look there with me. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials test our faith. Testing of faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, if it is allowed to have its complete work, complete us and perfect us. All of the rest of James chapter 1 builds upon this foundation. So it's worth looking at four little key concepts here. Testing, faith, steadfastness, and completeness. Testing here doesn't mean looking to see if there is any faith. Rather, it means purifying and refining faith that's already there. The way fire would purify gold by burning up impurities. And faith, well, faith is just James' shorthand for the gospel, for his knowledge that the people he was writing to believe the good news. Jesus died to pay for their sins. And steadfastness? Well, that means patiently enduring and holding on to faith as it's shaken and tested by trials, holding on to good works and holiness and hope, despite sufferings and trouble and trials and doubts. And lastly, perfect and complete, well, it portrays someone who's become mature, grown up, wholeheartedly, undividedly focused on God. It doesn't mean somebody who is sinless, who never ever sins, but what it does portray is someone whose heart is steadfastly turned toward God, who repents quickly and comes back to God quickly after sin and failure. So there's a sequence here, right? 
Trials test our faith. Holding on to our faith as it's tested produces steadfastness in us. And steadfastness, if we will let it, will perfect and complete us. If we will let God refine us and sanctify us through the trials that he will bring us, then he will present us faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The key to counting it all joy is to fix our minds on the prize, to fix our minds on the unbelievable promises of God, to remember that our trials and sufferings are not the end or the final word. Rather, they are the means by which God is purifying us and preparing us to be able to stand in his glory, in his presence, and receive joy and peace and blessing beyond our wildest imaginations. Now, before we move on, let me say a brief word about counseling. It's one thing to tell ourselves when trials and trouble hit us, count it all joy. It's another thing entirely to go after someone who's suffering and say, Count it all joy, brother. So how do we help people and encourage them when in the midst of trials and suffering, their faith starts to wane and they're hurting? How do we help them? Well, with empathy and love. By feeling their tears, by mourning with them, feeling their loss and pain, and by gently lifting their chins And reminding them that the trials and suffering they're going through are working for them a weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, where are we? Well, we've seen the first of James's three key commands. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Next, let's turn our attention to James's second command given in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what exactly is the command here? Well, it's the first part of the verse. Let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, let the refining that happens to you as your faith is tested and you hang on for dear life, let that refining that happens to you have its full and complete effect. In other words, it seems to be that it's possible to short-circuit this. It's possible to run away from trials and somehow short-circuit this refining process. And James is commanding us, hold on to your faith. And as it's shaken, keep holding on because that holding on refines you, will ultimately perfect and complete you if you will let it. So let's ask our little why question again. Why does James tell us, hold on? Let it have its complete work. Why? Well, the short answer is the reward. Look at verse 12 with me. As with all of Scripture, here in verse 12, God unashamedly holds out the promise of reward to those who believe in him and obey him. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There's the promised reward, the crown of life. That's the reward, immortality, 
a new body created in perfect holiness that's strong, not touched by sin or weakness or any such thing. A new heavens and a new earth that are so beautiful they're beyond anything we can imagine that make this present earth look like but a shadow. A place where there will be no mourning, no crying, no sickness, no pain. That's the promise. Now, who will receive this reward? Well, the one who has stood the test, the one who has remained steadfast under trial, the one who endured to the end. This is a theme that runs literally throughout the whole Bible. Endurance, holding firm as our faith is tested and shaken. Here are just a few little samples of it. Jesus refers to it by saying, by your endurance you will gain your lives. And Paul says, to those who by patience, there's that word, same Greek word, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The same word, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And Hebrews tells us that we have need of endurance so that when we have done the will of God, we may receive the things that are promised. And Hebrews exhorts us to run with endurance the race that's set before us. Clearly, this steadfastness, holding firm as our faith is tested and shaken, is absolutely critical in the life of a believer. Now, if steadfastness is so important, if only the one who holds fast, who endures to the end, is to be saved, then I ask you, how precious, how precious is something that produces the steadfastness in us, the very thing that we need to endure to the end? How precious is it when God brings something into our lives that works that in us. How precious is it when God prepares us to be able to receive a kingdom that's undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for us? <laughs> Truly, we ought to rejoice and give thanks to him for working in us and for being willing to perfect us and prepare us to receive the coming kingdom. So now we've seen the second of James's key commands. Count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. We've seen that we continue to hold fast, if we continue to hold fast to our faith as it is tested, then we will be perfected and completed. You know, faith and steadfastness are inseparable. We hold fast because we believe. And we continue to believe by holding fast, right? Now, let's lastly turn our attention to James's third command. Be doers. And see if we can find any practical guidance on exactly how to remain steadfast and be a doer. Look with me at verse 22. But... Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
James tells us here, well, commands us really to be doers and not hearers only. And he tells us that this is really, really important because to be a hearer only and not a doer is to deceive ourselves. And verse 25 tells us that the one who looks into the perfect law, God's perfect law, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. There's that promise of reward again. He'll be blessed in his doing. So let's purpose to look into God's word and act. So where do we start? Well, in verses 5 through 8, we're told what we need to do first. Pray. This whole pursuit, this allowing our trials to refine us and wanting to count it all joy is a spiritual pursuit. The strength and the wisdom and the endurance that we need to count it joy in the midst of suffering and trials is not within us. If we try to do spiritual things like this in our own fleshly strength, we're doomed to failure. Might as well not even try. We need to ask God for wisdom and endurance and joy. But we're told to ask in faith without doubting. Now you might think, oh, that's not very encouraging. I sometimes doubt. Will God answer my prayers? Well, take heart, my friend. James is not saying that if you have a doubt that comes and goes or a doubt here and a doubt there, God won't answer you. No, he's referring to someone who's got a settled, skeptical, and doubting disposition to God. Douglas Moo's words are very encouraging. Let me quote. He says, James is not here claiming that prayers will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists. For some degree of doubt on at least some occasions is probably, probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. That's us, Right? Well, if we are to be doers, and especially the doing of counting it all joy, it's easy to say, well, I'm going to go and be a doer and do this or that. But the primary doing that upholds all of this is the doing of counting it all joy when trials hit you. If we're to be doers and count it joy, then we need strength from God, right? So let me ask you a question. How's your prayer life? Do you start with prayer and ask God for the strength to run the race that's set before you? Or do you, like so many of us, myself included, forget to pray and only remember to pray when you're long down the road? If that's true of you as it is of me, then let's repent, ask God to forgive our prayerlessness and purpose even now in our hearts to turn to God in prayer and ask him for the strength to do. Next in verses 9, look there with me, verses 9 through 11, James tells us to remember who we are in Christ. Sinners saved by free, unconstrained grace alone. If you are in Christ, hear me, if you are in Christ, then you are a perfect, new sinless creation created by God himself, clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. And the old sinful you is dead, having been crucified with Jesus. Now James tells the lowly brother, that's the guy who doesn't have much money, 
to boast in his exaltation, to boast in his exalted state as a child of God, loved by the Father himself, an heir of immortality. Maybe that's you. Is money so tight you can hardly afford to sneeze? Well, then take heart, my friend. You're loved by God. In Christ, if you're truly in Christ, you are a perfect, new, sinless creation who will inherit God's kingdom. Loved by the infinite God himself. It's a staggering thought. James also tells the rich to boast in his humiliation. That's a strange way to put it. You see, the temptation for the rich, especially for us here in the West, is to find our value and our sense of worth in stuff, right? In the things we have and not in who we are in Christ. In the world's eyes, it's, it's humiliation. It's, it's really uncool and just not very, not very nice to be humble and weak and lowly, agonizing over sin and constantly dependent on Jesus for everything. That's really humiliating and uncool. And yet that is the rich man's ultimate glory, to be a son of the Most High God. So James reminds us that our worldly pursuits, our successful businesses, our new iPads, our beautiful cars and our lovely homes, they're all going to fade to nothing on the day that's coming. If you are rich, as most of us in the West are, remember, it's Jesus who gives you value. It's who you are in Christ, a forgiven saint who will inherit the world, loved by the great Lamb of God himself. That's where your value lies, not the stuff you have. Let me ask you, have you found that things are more important to you than God and his indescribable gift? Are you more keen to show your latest thing off to your friends than to tell them the gospel of the Lamb of God who loved them and died for them? Let us all repent of our love of stuff and purpose to lay up treasures in heaven so, after prayer, the next stone in the foundation of Christian action is to remember who we are in Jesus. Now, in verses 13 through 21, it's a long section, James turns his attention away from prayer and onto holiness, fighting temptation and sin by the word of God. Verses 13 to 16 tell us that God is not the source of evil temptation. God himself cannot be tempted. And he himself tempts no one. Rather, we are tempted when we are enticed and allured by sin. A perfectly holy man wouldn't be tempted by sin. It would be disgusting and abhorrent to him. But to us, with our fallen, corrupt natures, as we all know, there's something alluring and tempting about sin, isn't there? That's the cause of temptation, not God. Verses 14 to 15, they're very precious verses to me. They're one of the clearest descriptions, I think, in the whole Bible of how sin works. Those who are serious about holiness will do very well to meditate and read and pray over verses 14 to 15. 
And the end of verse 15 is especially important. It runs parallel to Romans 6.23, which tells us that the wages of sin is death. Verse 15 here says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't mess with sin. Sin is deadly. It might seem like innocent fun, but sin is an evil, pernicious thing. It hunt, hunts for the precious soul, the Bible tells us. It will hunt down your life while promising you joy and pleasure. So how do we fight temptation and sin? Well, it's by starting with prayer. Ask God to work a holy violence in you against sin. Ask God to give you an abhorrence, a hatred for sin. Ask God to give you the desire to fight against sin. And watch daily in the word. Watch daily in the word. Jesus said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. If you're a believer, you've seen this, right? Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak and temptation is really strong. James says here in verse 21, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Why does he say with meekness? Receive with meekness the implanted word. I suggest it's because of our tendency to elevate our own thoughts above God's word. We either tend to minimize the severity of sin and say, well, it's not so, so serious. We kind of grow comfortable with certain sins and overlook them. Or we tend to exalt our own thoughts and judgments about ourselves over God's testimony of who we are, perhaps tending to morbidity and despair. Part of receiving the word is to receive what God says about us and to believe it, to hold fast, if you're a believer, to who you are in Jesus, to fight as a forgiven saint, to hate sin, but remember who you are in Jesus. Now, almost everything that I've said so far today has been directed at believers, at those who believe and have accepted that Jesus died on the cruel cross of Calvary to pay for their sins. And that focus is right because James is primarily writing to believers. But I would be remiss if I didn't warn you should you not see the seriousness of sin or feel your desperate need of salvation through Jesus, I'd be remiss if I didn't warn you about the penalty and the consequences of sin. You know, unforgiven sin is like a great millstone tied securely around your ankle. If it's not removed, on the day of judgment, when you face the judgment of God, your sin will sink you lower than the grave will drown you in a flood of destruction and everlasting fire. You need Jesus to save you. You might not feel your need right now, but you need Jesus to take away the penalty and the guilt of your sin. Some of you here who haven't yet received forgiveness from Jesus have felt this. Even now your consciences are needling at you. My friend... Take the gift that God offers you in Jesus. Don't cast him away. Don't play with sin. 
please, don't play with sin. Even now, come to the great Lamb of God who died on the cross at Calvary, who gave his perfect life as a gift to pay for your sins, and who now holds out perfect righteousness as a gift. Now, while you have life and breath, take that gift from him. Even now as I speak, would you accept, would you humbly accept the words that I, I give you and come to Jesus to be saved? You know, fighting sin is not the business of an unbeliever. If you would be saved, if you want to be a doer, the very first thing you need to do is to believe, to have your sins washed away by the Lamb of God. If you are a believer, though, then fighting sin is to be your daily business. Remembering both what God has done and has promised to do in you and for you. Make war on sin. Fix your eyes on the promises of God. Fix your eyes on what he's said he will do for you. And make war on sin. As John Piper has said, and I quote, I love this quote. The fire of sin's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to, try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust's pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. The key is the power of promises. When we are entranced by the preciousness and the magnificence of them, the effect is liberation from sins which are, in fact, not precious and not magnificent. Finally, in verses 22 through 27, James tells us to check our spiritual pulse, so to speak, to make sure that we're, in fact, alive, doers, not dead, self-deceived, hearers only. You know, this is a real deadly possibility. Dreams of heaven while lying in the dungeon of self-deception might be very pleasurable and beautiful. But they're just that. Dreams. James gives us three concrete tests that we can use to gauge our spiritual pulse and see whether there's life or not. First, in verse 26, our tongues. James tells us that a tongue that's left unbridled that we just let fly without any attempt at control is a symptom that the faith we think we may have may in fact not be faith at all. There's a scary picture in, in, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress right at the end. A man called Ignorance comes walking up to the gates of heaven and right at the gates of heaven he finds he doesn't have a certificate as Bunyan puts it a seal from God. And he's cast into the very depths of hell from the gate of heaven. It's a terrible ending. It's not a pretty picture. Deception, being self-deceived is a terrible thing. How's your tongue? Do you plead with God 
and strive, filling your mind with scripture, striving to bring this unruly world of fire and unrighteousness under control? Or do you bless God and backbite others? Bless God and curse people? The second health check is given in the first part of verse 27. James tells us that true faith will lead to love, and especially love to the weak and the helpless in society. As James puts it, to visit, to help widows and orphans in their affliction. Does your faith move you to act? To pour out love and kindness on others, especially those who don't deserve it and who can't pay you back? When last did you do something undeserved to those who didn't deserve it and who couldn't pay you back? Do you care about the helpless, the downtrodden, and the forgotten? James' little one-liner here, visit widows and orphans in their affliction, is a really succinct summary of a theme that runs across the whole Bible. God loves widows, orphans, the elderly, the sick, and the dying. He loves them very much. And so should we. If you've never thought about how to love and serve the outcasts, or if you've thought about it and just never done anything about it, then check your faith and repent of inaction. Pray even now and ask God to forgive you and purpose in your heart to act, to love. The final health check, which is fitting because that's the theme of the Bible, the final health check at the end of verse 27 is holiness. Purity, keeping oneself unstained from the world. A heart that runs after worldly passions and worldly possessions with never a care about God or holiness. No attention to devotion to God. No hatred of sin. James tells us that's a symptom of a diseased and probably dead faith. Have you been playing with sin lately? Have you allowed certain sins to become pet sins? Oh, you don't embrace them publicly, but in secret. Hold them fast in your heart. Have you grown tired, weary of constant vigilance against sin? Then let me encourage you to renew your battle and your fight against sin. Strive. Strive. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So James's third command is to be doers and not hearers only. Soaked in prayer and remembering that we're wrapped in the perfect righteousness that Christ wrought for us. We're to be active and steadfast, doing. We're to fight sin using the word of God. So what have we learned today? Well... God uses trials to test our faith. The testing of faith shakes our faith and produces steadfastness. If we hold on to our faith as it's shaken, that works steadfastness in us. And if we allow steadfastness to have its complete work, it will perfect us, make us complete. And this is reason for joy. Not freedom from pain and suffering, but it is reason for joy. A deep-seated joy that puts ballast in the ship of our faith and makes us active 
joy-filled, steadfast. He who endures to the end will be saved. So count it all joy when God works in you to make you steadfast, to give you stability and steadfastness. Look your trials directly in the face and say, bless you, trial, for perfecting me. Bless you, trial, for making me steadfast. Bless you, trial, for loosening my hand from this world. Bless you, trial, for turning my heart away from loving this world and to looking to the coming kingdom. Bless you, trial. Count it all joy. Be steadfast and be doers. As we close, let me leave with you the words of Hebrews. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised.